let's start our third panel on public health in it outsider states. Our, our first panelist is David Bryden, who is one of our postdocs on the Reluctant Internationalist Project. He has just recently defended uh, successfully his dissertation, which was entitled Franco's Internationalists, Spanish Health and Welfare Experts on the World Stage. Uh, he works in the history of internationalism and the history of Spain and will be presenting from his research. Thanks, Joanna. Um, hi, everyone. Apologies for not uh, having circulated the paper in advance. Um, I'd like to claim specific mitigating circumstances, but I'm afraid it was just kind of life getting in the way. Um, if anyone wants any kind of written information afterwards, I'm happy to send the paper over. So, Franco Spain was always, to a greater or lesser extent, an international outsider. Um, Spanish health experts in Franco Spain responded to this status in two different ways. Firstly, they tried to construct and participate in international networks that were most closely aligned with Francoist ideology and identity. So during the Second World War, for example, they worked very closely with Nazi Germany and the Axis powers, which is something we're going to hear from Paul about a little bit more later on. Um, they worked very closely with other imperial uh, powers in Africa, so in inter-imperial networks, which touches on some of Jessica Pearson Patel's uh, research. Uh, and they worked with experts in Latin America and with other um, Catholic countries and Catholic networks. But the second uh, response was to try to integrate themselves into mainstream international health networks and organisations. So to a certain extent, uh, as we heard of the Soviet Union, they were both supplicants and advocates, they both had feelings of superiority and inferiority. And today, what I want to focus on is, is this, this second area, this uh, uh, attempt to integrate themselves into international organisations. So I'm going to focus on Spain's relationship with the WHO at a specific point in time, so in the immediate post-Second War, uh, World War period, uh, when the WHO was being established. It was at this point that Spain was most obviously an international outsider. Tainted by its association with the defeated Axis powers and by its origins in interwar fascism, the regime was shunned by the international community, excluded from the UN and subjected to a wide-ranging diplomatic boycott with the, kind of the general hope that that would somehow bring down the regime. This isolation extended to the field of health. So Spanish experts were largely excluded from international health organisations, networks, events in the immediate post-war period. Crucially, Spain was also excluded from the WHO when it was founded in 1946. And indeed, if we accept that colonial territories were generally represented by their uh, European imperial rulers and take into account the Allied Control Commissions represented the defeated Axis states, Spain was the only major state not to be involved in the International Health Conference in 1946, which established the WHO. So it was the post-war international outsider. Despite all of this, Spain's outsider status was relatively short-lived. By the late 1940s, it had become clear that the Franco regime was not going to go away. The onset of the Cold War meant that Franco could shift attention away from his regime's fascist past and towards its impeccable anti-communist credentials. The US in particular was keen to ensure uh, access to the strategically important Iberian Peninsula in the case of any future confrontation with the Soviet Union and was at the forefront of the rapprochement with the, the Franco regime. 
As a result, Spain was gradually able to normalise its relationship with the outside world during the early 1950s. In the field of health, this meant that Spanish experts were reintegrated into international health networks and into the scientific community more generally, and Spain was granted membership of the WHO in 1951. So we're looking at this period from 1946 uh, to 1951 in the early years of the Cold War. There was a big debate during the foundation of the WHO around whether or not Spain should be a member of the new organisation. And the, kind of the progress of the debate was very convoluted, very complicated, and I'm not going to go into the details of how it played out here today. What I do want to do is to uh, ask what the case of Spain tells us about outsiders in post-war international health in general and in the early years of the WHO in particular. And I want to um, explore in particular four aspects of the insider-outsider question in relation to the post-war WHO. So the first uh, area I want to talk about is the, the big debate about universal membership, uh, which took place in 1946, the question of WHO's universality, uh, which the Spanish question was a key part of. Um, second, I want to look at the conflict between international health experts on the one hand, who were generally those who were in favour of universal membership and universality of the WHO, and by extension, membership of Spain. And nation states, particularly the great powers on the other hand, who were generally pushing for more political restrictions on uh, WHO membership and were generally more opposed to uh, Spanish entry. Third, I want to talk about the role of the Soviet Union in this membership debate and the kind of the early years of the Cold War uh, and its relation to the WHO. And this will touch on, I think, some of the things that we're going to hear from, from Dora tomorrow about the Soviet uh, relationship with the WHO and the uh, countries of Eastern Europe. And finally, I want to uh, use the case of Spain to, to talk about the ways in which international outsiders were able to exploit the language of international health as both a technical and as a humanitarian field to try to overcome their outsider status and try to integrate into the international community. So first of all, the, the question of Spanish membership stood at the heart of a much larger debate about universal membership which raged during the foundation of the WHO. The debate concerned, on the one hand, the relationship between the WHO and uh, the colonial territories controlled by Britain, France and other European states. And on the other, the position of so-called ex-enemy countries, so the defeated uh, Axis powers. In the latter case, so the ex-enemy countries, the involvement of states such as Italy and Austria, where democratic governments had been established, was seen as fairly unproblematic. Japan and Germany, it was generally accepted, would be admitted once new governments emerged under the tutelage of the Allied Control Commissions. But Spain was a much more complicated case the extent that it was clearly a fascist power, it had its origins uh, with uh, the interwar fascism, but hadn't been defeated and wasn't under the control of any of the Allied states. There were various reasons why the universality debate or the universal membership debate was so prominent in 1956. One was the traditional idea that universal membership was necessarily to meet the technical demands of epidemiological control. So as Stamper argued in 1946, that disease knows no boundaries, and so therefore international organisations need to know no boundaries. I mean, we were all familiar with this kind of argument working on international health. Added to this was the, the general idealism of the immediate post-war period and the idea that in the atomic age, an increasingly interconnected world needed truly global institutions to meet the challenges that were arising. Finally, and most importantly in this case, 
was the conviction that lessons needed to be learned from the failure of the LNHO in the interwar period. That failure, according to many of the experts and officials who straddled both uh, organisations, was due to the politicisation of the health body through its links to the wider League of Nations and its subsequent fragmentation and the withdrawal of key powers. To avoid the same thing happening, again, they argued, the new WHO should be non-political, independent and universal. This meant limiting ties with the wider UN uh, reflected in the decision to name it the World Health Organization rather than the United Nations Health Organization and resisting any attempts to restrict membership on political grounds. So the question of universality and universal membership pitted many of the experienced international health experts involved with the creation of the WHO, so men like Stamper, Yves Barrault, Jacques Parisot, Melvin McKenzie, who broadly supported universal membership, against the interests of national governments and the major powers who, in general, were more keen on placing restrictions on WHO membership. The experts involved in the foundation of the WHO have kind of led the way uh, in discussing plans for the new organisations during the, the Second World War. They were the ones who uh, had most direct experience of international health administration and who would go on to lead the WHO during its first decades. Their support for universality, as I said, stemmed from both their idealistic conception of international health and from the lessons that they'd drawn from the failure of the LNHO. Nevertheless, they were ultimately unsuccessful in creating what they hoped would be a non-political organisation, a universal organisation. And what ultimately happened in the, the case of uh, the universal membership debate and the Spanish question uh, was that national governments were successful in establishing restrictions on membership. And this can, you can kind of trace this, this process through the, the changing balance of powers between the two groups, so between nation states on one hand and international health experts uh, on the other, uh, that's uh, varied throughout the negotiations leading up to the foundations of the WHO in 1946. So, for example, the kind of first stage of the creation of the WHO was the Technical Preparatory Committee, which took place in March 1946. And the idea was, of this was to draw up a draft WHO constitution, which would also obviously include clauses on membership criteria. And the Technical Preparatory Committee was made up of, I think it was 16 experts who were explicitly acting as experts rather than as representatives of national governments. And many of these experts, like Melvin McKenzie, had experience of the LNHO and would go on to play important roles in the, the early years of the WHO. And it was because of the uh, prominent role of these experts, it was here where support for universal membership was at its height. But even at this stage, even at this very early stage, national governments were able to influence the debate and were able to push back against this idea of universality. Um, specifically through uh, the draft constitutions that governments or the major states, so the UK, the US uh, and France, submitted, all of which introduced clauses which somehow mitigated or somehow uh, limited uh, access or limited uh, membership of the, the new body. From this point onwards, so from the Technical Priority Committee onwards through to the International Health Conference that marked the founding of the, the WHO, the influence of international health experts gradually waned at the expense of national government, which, which gradually began to exert their control over the, the process. Even when these experts were able to retain their influential positions, 
they were often forced to compromise their ideals as a consequence of the dual roles they were forced to play. So, for example, uh, Stampo, we saw in the, the previous picture, uh, an eco, uh, a meeting of the Economic and Social Council to discuss the new organisation, was forced to vote against his own a resolution on membership, universal membership, that he'd previously supported because as a representative of uh, the Yugoslav delegation, he was required to vote along, uh, alongside the, the Soviet Union. So even when experts were playing roles in these, uh, these decision-making bodies, because they were also representing their national states on many occasions, they, uh, they were not able to necessarily follow their heart and follow their, their own particular um, interests. As a result, what ultimately happened uh, in the International Health Conference was that the, the new constitution placed restrictions uh, on membership and subordinated uh, the WHO to a degree of uh, control by the United Nations through its relationship with the Economic and Social Council. But in the same way that national governments were responsible for excluding Spain in 1946, it was their actions rather than the influence of these health experts uh, which opened the door for Spanish entry in 1951. Increasing Cold War tensions, the withdrawal of the Soviet Union, and uh, the favourable Security Council resolution of 1950 created the conditions under which Spanish membership could be proposed. The dominant role of national governments in the annual World Health Assemblies ensured that the increasing diplomatic support for the Franco regime was reflected in the acceptance of Spanish membership when it was proposed at the Fourth World Health, Health Assembly in 1951. In terms of the, the Cold War, the attitude of the Soviet Union, or the role of the Soviet Union, played a crucial uh, role in this debate about Spanish membership, even before Soviet officials had begun to take part in the formal negotiations about the WHO. So from the very outset, the future participation of the Soviet Union and its allies was a major concern of Western governments and international health experts. Aware of the damage caused to the League of Nations and its health organisation by the non-participation of major powers, there was near unanimity in 1946 that the WHO could not perform its functions without Soviet participation. For its part, the Soviet government was suspicious of the United Nations and its specialised agencies to a certain extent and didn't send uh, <coughs> delegations to the Technical Preparatory Committee, uh, which I talked about uh, a minute ago. But even at this stage, uh, Western countries were thinking about how the Soviet Union would react to the way the WHO developed. So Britain in particular was worried that if Spain was admitted to the WHO, the Soviet Union would refuse to join, which is something that uh, had happened in the case of a few other technical organisations that were established in, the early, in early 1946. The Soviet Union and its allies uh, joined negotiations over the formation of the WHO after the Technical Preparatory Committee um, and played an important role in the International Health Conference in 1946 that established the new organisations. And in both settings, both Soviets and the Eastern European states vocally opposed granting membership to Franco-Spain and found themselves in opposition to the US and to many Latin American states. Ultimately, it was their opposition which prevented the International Health Conference agreeing membership rules which would have granted rapid entry to the WHO in 1946. But at the same time as uh, the Soviets and their allies had helped to prevent Spanish membership at that stage, it was the withdrawal of the Soviet Union and the Eastern European states between 1949 and 1950, which paved the way for Spain to then join the organisation in 1951. Um, 
The public reasons for the, this withdrawal were uh, dissatisfaction with the way the organisation was run, but Dora, as I said, will be discussing tomorrow in a bit more detail how that happened. Uh, what it basically meant in terms of Spain is that the main source of opposition to Spanish membership was removed, um, and with the US increasingly keen on integrating Franco-Spain into the international uh, community, uh, as soon as the, uh, the UN Security Council lifted its blanket ban on, on Spanish membership of uh, UN organisations in 1950, Spain was uh, able to join the organisation relatively unproblematically, primarily with the support of uh, the US and Latin American states and some of their uh, Arab allies. There were some dissenting uh, voices, so Mexico, which was implacably hostile to the, the Franco regime, continued to oppose its membership, but there wasn't enough resistance to prevent uh, Spain from joining. So finally, wait. so the final point I want to make is about Spain's uh, role in all of this uh, this debate and their uh, their attitude towards the WHO and international health uh, more generally. So I want to begin with a uh, quote from Jose Palanca, who is the Franquist Director General of Health and a former Rockefeller Fellow, um, who went to the World Health Assembly in 1951 when Spain had been admitted, and he told the Assembly that Spain ardently desired to become a member of the World Health Organization. Our country, he said, has never omitted to fulfill its obligations in matters of welfare work, humanitarianism, and health on the international level. But the delay cannot be imputed to my country. It was not Spain which obscured the question of our international obligations in matters of health and welfare by considerations of political differences largely of a passing nature. And this argument really reflected uh, Spain's, or, uh, Spain's approach to this debate about uh, membership of the WHO. Uh, what they aimed to do was to argue that rather than being a remnant of interwar fascist Europe, that Franco-Spain was a responsible, humanitarian, humane member of the international community. And actually their arguments were very successful. So during the conference in 1946 and the debate about Spanish membership, uh, Francoist diplomats lobbied... Um, both Western and Latin American and Arabic states to try and get them to support um, Spain's entry and were remarkably successful. So even countries such as Venezuela, whose governments were opposed to the Franco regime, ended up supporting Spanish membership in 1946 on the grounds of the idea that this new health organisation should be indivisible because of the universality of global health and all of these kind of things. So the, the, the Francoist regime was actually very successful at using the, uh, the idealistic language surrounding the WHO and international health in 1946 to win support even before it was, it was it gained full entry to the organisation. And this really reflected uh, a much wider phenomenon that, that, uh, that we see in relation to uh, Franco-Spain and I think other outsider states in similar situations. So the Franco regime very consciously used technical organisations and technical bodies as a way to try and mitigate their outsider status and to gain entry to international organisations, to gain international acceptance. And that was the same for the WHO, for the FAO, for the ILO, for various technical agencies. But particularly in the case of the WHO, they were able to combine this technical argument with a humanitarian argument. So the argument that there was something specific about health, both its technical and its humanitarian character, 
which meant that political considerations or political restrictions were somehow invalid, were somehow based, shouldn't be considered. Um, and Spain was very successful in using health as a way to gain access to the international community. The WHO was one of the first UN agencies. It joined in 1951, uh, and there was a process of gradual integration into these organisations that culminated in membership of the uh, UN in 1955. And I think uh, the, the, kind of the point I want to end on is that uh, for outsider states, international health is often used as a way to mitigate their, their outsider status. doesn't need much introduction, but by way of introduction, he's the Wellcome Trust Research Professor in History of Medicine at Oxford Brookes University. Paul Weinley, uh, his research covers evolution in society, public health, human experimentation, eugenics, um, and he's recently compared, uh, completed a biography uh, of the psychiatrist John West Thompson. So today, he'll be speaking on Germany as an outsider in international health under Nazism. Thank you very much for the introduction. Thank you for warmly for the invitation. I feel very happy at a conference of, on outsiders. <laughs> very nice. Um, and um, I'm also very happy with the topic which was given to me, but I think there's a great deal more to be said than I know Iris Borovi in her really excellent book has written about the League of Nations Health Organization during the Second World War, how Biro became very isolated in Geneva and the strained, the problems of relating to the Office Internationale d'Hygiene Publique in France, um, not actually so far away, but um, I think there's still more things to be said about the German side, and although WHO history has been, uh, is being looked at, somehow there is a disconnect between what goes on in the war and the new era of international health organisations, the new portfolio of, inter of, of international organisations after the war. Um, I myself do a lot of work on health on I could say international organisations as repositories of, um, I could say, uh, data and life histories on victims also regarding their role in obtaining compensation. For example, the UN Division of Human Rights has got excellent victim files in Geneva. I worked through a couple of thousand victim files. Um, in, and also its role in, how can I say, taking forward issues raised at the Nuremberg trials regarding um, I can say the prosecution for, uh, regarding the medical crimes of the Nazis, but what to do about victims. In the UN division with John Humphreys, a uh, very creditable Canadian um, um, director, also a staff in part taken over from the Nuremberg trials, um, pursued this with great effect, although with problematic issues. But that's not quite what I'll be talking about here, because here the issue is very much the uh, what happened in Germany during the Second World War and the issue, I think, perhaps, is, if one takes Peter Gay's term, the outsider's insider, is <laughs> who's the outsider, who's the insider, um, the problematic um, issues. Um, certainly, though, when Germany uh, departs the, um, from the League, 
um, with, um, with the great political propaganda. It doesn't want to leave the international arena. And it looks then to the office de publique, Hans Reiter, the new head of the um, international of the um, of the German uh, Reich Health um, um, Office, um, has got international ambitions, and these international ambitions certainly in the context of the pre-war period when Nazi Germany is seeking, uh, I can say, political legitimation, and uh, during the war when it becomes more and more autarkic and there is this vision of a German-led new European health system. Probably also, I mean, certainly European, I think there were also wider visions so that, um, for German power. Um, if I, this issue of outsiders, insiders, if one goes back into the historiography and uh, one looks back at the um, idea of, um, goes right back to the late 1970s, um, work on shattered alternatives in medicine, that there was during the Weimar period a whole new set of progressive pioneering social health um, measures, and these visionary social health measures extent is were they dismantled by the Nazis, one can argue about that, but certainly the pioneers of this international health system were displaced. And so these previously, these insiders, one can, um, I've just given two examples here, one Karl Prausnitz, the professor of immunology, the professor of hygiene, uh, he wrote, writes really well about European uh, preventive medicine and the different hygiene institutes around Europe. Um, he is able to leave Germany. He ends up as Dr. Giles, a general practitioner on the Isle of Wight. Um, the other person whom I think is worth a mention is Julius Tandler from Vienna, displaced slightly later with the Austro-Fascist um, re regime. But, um, and then, I think it's quite difficult. Um, sometimes the accounts say he's on his way back from China, and sometimes they say he's going to China, but dies in Moscow. Um, I think it needs to be clarified. Um, but a visionary public health expert, the, the architect of health, of, um, of, I can say, socialized health and welfare in Red Vienna. Um, so this issue of profiling the, uh, the status of Nazi Germany, of its, um, um, we've heard about congresses, of course the Germans are organized and um, there is this Deutsche Kongresszentrale, it's received some historical attention, Madeleine Heron has written about it, but it is a great resource and I think it's worthwhile um, looking at it in greater detail. And on, the other hand, there is international opposition. I've given the example of a Nobel Prize winning physiologist, A.V. Hill. He's one of the people who established an organization called the Academic Assistance Council, later the Society for Protection of Science and Learning, which did a great deal, not only in the UK, but also globally, to, um, um, to resettle displaced scholars, also people in medicine, increasingly. Um, and it is interesting to see how these issues um, 
pan out. I've also given an example. Um, this is um, a, from an album of photographs of Scottish students, a delegation of Scottish students who visited um, Nazi Germany in, I think it's 1935. And this part of the visit is when they go to the uh, Führerschule der Deutschen Ärzteschaft in Altriese. Um, and uh, one can see these, um, I can say it was uh, these sort of rather rural buildings, the rather simple circumstances. And this was, um, the idea was this was to re-indoctrinate the German medical profession, but also it was being portrayed internationally in this case, as long as with many other these um, um, of, uh, Nazi German institutions. And is Germany outsider, insider? There was certainly, if one would say, do a study of British universities and British professions with Nazi Germany, with their linkages, you, one would find a great deal. I mean, the British Dental Association said when there was the takeover of Austria, oh, at last the Austrian dental surgeons will receive a proper education from the Germans and so on. I mean, there was uh, uh, the um, issues of, um, I would say, uh, of, um, of legitimation, transfer, and acceptance of uh, Nazi Germany. It was, they were very, very contested. Um, you also see people, careers. Uh, I've given one example here of Eugen Hagen. Not a Rockefeller fellow, but he worked at, from 1928 to 29 at the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research from 31 to 34, so already into the Nazi period. He's working at the Yellow Fever Laboratories of the Rockefeller Foundation. So there's actual, I can say, trans, in, I can say, staff transfers. He's at the Reich Health Office previously and goes back to the Robert Koch Institute. He becomes one of Germany's leading virologists uh, during the war. He has an interesting career because when he's working at a germ warfare laboratories under the Soviets, the British in Berlin are very, very cleverly lure him over to their zone, capture him. And then when he's imprisoned, he writes to the Rockefeller Foundation. Oh, you know, I'm the great uh, Professor Hagen. Uh, you remember me, don't you? Um, you will, of course, arrange that um, I should be uh, freed and liberated and so on. And he, the foundation actually ignored the letters quite deliberately. By that time, they realized how, how, how things were. Um, but um, after, a brief, after a second uh, prison trial, he resumes his career. So this, um, just giving an example from this Deutsche Congress in Charlie, there's a report here on methods for influencing international scientific meetings as laid down by German scientific organizations, uh, reported interestingly by Leo Alexander, a neurologist, key figure at the Nuremberg trials, and how the advice on principle the German participants of congresses in foreign countries should appear as a compact closed group and there's it really is very regimented um, who should be at the congress and a good example is this international congress i've 
Uh, Susan spoke about it uh, and its importance for um, French abortion um, legislation. Here there is the issue of race going on and uh, we can see this big German <coughs> delegation. It's to legitimise eugenics and race theory, coercive sterilisation and the coercive um, uh, measures of Nazi Germany. And there is the group in opposition, much more disorganised, convivial, friendly, Franz Boas, the, um, the anthropologist from Columbia University, New York, meeting here with a set of French, also international supporters, Paul Ridé, an ethnologist, is a key person, in a group called Rasse Racism, and um, they publish on this Congress. And they give a summary on the paper, uh, it's this paper here, um, on the, the question of race is at the International Congress of Population, um, on the eugenics issues at the conference, um, and they go through. Um, and it's a very interesting group, this Rasera season. Uh, I think there is also a very interesting period, which is between 1938 and 41, because it is a window for collaboration with the Soviet Union. Uh, no sooner is the, um, the uh, Russian saying, no sooner is there this uh, secret uh, agreements with the Russians, there are then opportunities for collaboration, and they are upscaled, formal agreements during the war, and there is a reactivation of the Weimar German-Soviet scientific contacts, um, albeit for a brief period, but still a couple of, couple of years. Um, it's, uh, interesting relations. And we also have, in this window of time, um, German-US relations, which are very active. The US continues its, the Rockefeller Foundation, sorry, continues its Paris office during the war. Former fellows visit in SS uniform, for example. The visits are recorded. Um, well worthwhile looking at the, uh, the records of the Paris office, um, certainly from that point of view. Um, and the Rockefeller Foundation is also funding not only the German fellows, but also Kaiser Wilhelm Institutes. They gave more money for a single institute like um, than it gave as a whole to their Displaced Refugee Scholars Program. Um, they are, I can say, backing both sides and they're scaling back the American support. And there's also um, Bill Schneider, years ago, did pioneering work on the International Health Division to Vichy France, but at, during this, is it 1940 or 41? The, the expedition, but they say, oh yes, and we're establishing contacts with Berlin as well. So it's not just to Vichy France, it was to the, um, the new uh, sort of Europe, I can say, to the German-dominated Europe. And in the end, the director of the Rockefeller Foundation says, what are you doing there? Come back quickly. And he, uh, I mean, but they don't really want to, they're quite happy. In, where they are, but interesting. Okay, so that if we look then at um, Reiter and the Reich Health Office, we could see what you could see this sort of geomedical, um, the 
German occupation of these areas is accompanied by uh, this, this uh, German hygiene as geomedicine, by and large. There's a figure, Heinz Zeiss, we well know him. He was in the Soviet Union in the 20s. In 1933, become professor of hygiene in Berlin. And he is one of the key figures. Um, the, there is an office for international relations of Helmut Halbold, an SS officer, um, some competence in endocrinology. He is actively involved in combat squads, also in the, uh, the Sonderkommando squad, Kunzberg, mainly to remove um, art and other artifacts, so predatory. And he designs this new scheme of European medicine. Um, the person, okay, there but maybe two elements to this German work. One is that there is the repatriations of ethnic Germans. Another is that Germans who had been born in Russia, who leave Russia as refugees, then come back with these Einsatzgruppen, are working in the Reichsostministerium. I've given the example of Harold Wigner directing the medical department in the Ministry for the Occupied Eastern Territories. Um, he is one of the, he, he, born in Russia, born in Russia. Other figures as well who uh, take key roles in, for example, the, here's in the State Hygiene Institute at Litzmannstadt, where there is a large ghetto. Or Sophie Erhardt, a, a Russian background, Russian-German background, working in the Reich Health Office initially, um, born in Kazan, and she's a key figure in the identification of Sinti and Roma, of gypsies, before they are deported to Auschwitz, to the um, uh, Tsigoyna Lager, where they're under the supervision of Mengele, <coughs> where there is a massive killing in uh, beginning of August 1944. Same time, if we look at other areas, when we can look at vaccines, for example, um, we see the efforts of the Germans who subjugate the, try and subjugate at least the Pasteur Institute. You set up not, not Pasteur Institutes anymore, but bearing institutes around Eastern Europe. You um, had about um, 11 of these, I believe. And there's also research in concentration camps. Um, Buchenwald is a very good example. Um, then there is schemes to promote German, um, I wouldn't say, this new, they're still trying to push this idea of some new German health organization, also culturally. And here the, organ, the author, Ferdinand Céline, comes, makes his entry. Uh, Céline had worked for Reichmann in Geneva in the um, early 1920s, before he caused chaos with, I think it was a group of Latin American, on a tour to Europe of Latin American doctors who seem to have just visited brothels and casinos and so on, and it ended, the tour ended badly. That's tourism of a different sort. Um, but this is this, these study visits, which was financed by the League of Nations and through the Rockefeller Foundation. And um, Celine, very iconoclastic author, 
if whoever he's with, even if he had fascist sympathies, he was going to debunk and poke fun at the Germans. And he says, what am I meant to do? I'm meant to write about the superiority of this or that prophet. He called him a Professor Fritz. He says, uh, it's ridiculous. Um, and then after this attempt at promoting the scientific collaboration through him, he centers the doctor-in-chief of the puppet French government in exile at Sigmaring, and, uh, where he, in fact, becomes a, a novel, isn't it? One castle to another. Three novels. So a well-known incident, but it has a political, I think, a, a political and organizational background, which is worth thinking of because of the role of this Haubold. I think there's a lot more to be said about Haubold and this German scheme and the um, um, and its promotions. I think that's where I'm coming to an end. I'll leave it at that discussion. <laughs> is Maria Zarifi. She is a senior lecturer at Hellenic Open University in Athens, working in the history of science, particularly from a social and cultural angle. She's also author of a book on German-Greek scientific relations in the Nazi period entitled Science, Culture, and Politics, Germany's Cultural Policy and Scientific Relations with Greece, 1933 to 1945. Uh, and today she'll be presenting from a, her new project, and her paper is entitled Public Health and the Construction of Greece. Well, thank you very much. Um, and uh, I indeed thank you very much for uh, inviting me here. Um, this is uh, a part of my uh, ongoing, ongoing project. Uh, regarding the discussion of modernity from um, uh, the medical scientists in Greece and how this um, notion of modernity goes hand in hand um, with the development uh, of the uh, Greek state. Um, um, so, um, and I'm trying to describe here or to give you an overview of uh, um, uh, how Greece uh, uh, was developed uh, and uh, what role the medical scientists played in this kind of uh, uh, development um, uh, during the 19th century or um, and the first decades of the 20th century. Um, in the 19th century, Greece and uh, the other Balkan states were formed after uh, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, developing a sense of belonging to the European cultural and political body. Uh, the new era should have modern features, and the Greeks understood them uh, as European, Western, in other words, civilized. This primarily meant being industrialized, economically independent, and politically strong. The quest for modernity by Greece also meant breaking the links uh, with its barbarian, uh, as the Greeks called it, Ottoman past. However, for the rest of Europe, Greece as part of the Balkans, continue to be regarded as a backward, primitive, uncultured, and uncivilized agrarian land. The region was also labeled as the Orient, clearly, signalizing, uh, clearly signaling that it did not belong to Western civilization. Nevertheless, it offered the most fertile soil for uh, exerting influence and control 
so that civilizing or even Europe Europeanizing the region became a priority for the European powers in their foreign policy, policy agenda. Uh, creating modern Greek state also meant shaping the nation's identity, a task that deeply involved the medical scientists. Since 18th century, Greek elites had already oriented themselves toward the West and the merits of the French Enlightenment. Greek merchants and the Fanagots, who uh, supplied significant funds for the so-called um, Greek War for Independence, as well as uh, an ideological framework, were inspired by the ideals of the Enlightenment and the French Revolution, creating uh, the movement of the modern Greek Enlightenment. The Fanariots were prominent and influential families who were, who were residing in the district of Fanar in Istanbul, where the uh, ecumenical uh, patriarchate also located. These elites were very much involved with science. They translated a number of medical philosophical books into Greek and even published their own studies in their doctoral uh, thesis approach. This intellectual current also referred to as a modern Greek Renaissance, not only ideologically justified um, the um, uh, Greek cause of independence, it also created the scholarly fabric upon which the modern Greek state would slowly waive its existence. Greek science also followed this path of Western modernity as well. Moreover, it became the vehicle that led the new state into the modern era. Even though the country from uh, 1832 until the creation of its first uh, university in Athens in 1837 did not have an established community of professional physicians, there was a significant number of traditional healers and there was also a number of recognized Greek medical uh, uh, practitioners uh, in the diaspora who played a decisive role in the country's uh, tradition to modernity. During the 19th century, um, uh, most of the European um, metropolises, uh, Paris, Vienna, Berlin, Bucharest, Budapest, and Munich, were some of the European cities where Greeks went to study medicine and were initiated not only into science and its achievements, but also into a new way of thinking, into the uh, European Enlightenment. Many Greeks made their career in European countries and others um, returned to their homeland or headed to the heart of the Ottoman Empire, uh, meaning Istanbul, where there was a large Greek community. They developed close relations with the Orthodox Patriarchate, contributed to the creation and organization of the administrative organs of the Greek um, diaspora in the Ottoman Empire, and eventually became carriers of a national ideology. When Greece was declared an independent state, those scientists used their established prestige abroad to gain power and a strong voice in establishing a modern European state. Creating a modern Greek state also meant uh, shaping, uh, shaping the nation's identity, a task that deeply involved medical scientists. 
Um, since 18th century, Greek elites already oriented themselves toward the West and the merits of the French Enlightenment. Uh, the merchants and the final yards uh, supplied uh, with funds, with money, uh, the uh, war for independence, uh, but also the ideological framework um, that uh, was um, also um, uh, inspired the creation, as I said, of the... Um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm lost a little bit. Yes. Um, now, um, after, um, after having described, let's say, the, uh, the prehistory of, uh, the, um, uh, of the modern Greek state, um, uh, I will try to, um, to sketch the structure of the uh, public health uh, in Greece, at least the administrative uh, level of the public health. The first hygienic service in Greece, the Department of Hygiene, was founded in 1833, and it was one of the six departments of the Ministry of the Interior. At the same time, uh, the Medical Committee was created. This was the highest state authority for all hygienic and health issues, uh, and was in charge of um, uh, standardization, professionalization, and control uh, of uh, the future of academic medicine in Greece. Um, the initiator of the creation of this medical council was um, a Bavarian, uh, the Bavarian personal physician of uh, Otto Skor, the king, uh, or the first king of uh, Greece. Um, and um, uh, its role was more, uh, the role of the council was more so a consultative one and it had significant influence at least until 1923 uh, when it was renamed as a High Council of Hygiene. Four years after the establishment of the modern Greek state, the creation of the university, of Greek university, may have sounded uh, more uh, than ambitious, uh, if not unrealistic, and indeed it was. Greece lacked not only the proper administration and infrastructure, but also adequate, well-equipped scientists who could staff the new university. Um, in addition, the whole project lacked adequate um, funding um, for its full and smooth operation, despite the generous do donation from the rich um, um, uh, patriots of the Greek diaspora. Nevertheless, the Greek vision of creating a university that would uh, free the spirit of the backwardness of Ottoman slavery, thereby strengthening their national identity, was in full swing. Therefore, the new university was to be structured on European models, but it should also reflect the country's uh, ancient heritage uh, by reviving Plato's academy. Um, um, this was the words of one of its first uh, rectors, of the university's first rectors. The creation of uh, higher education, uh, educational institution, brought to the fore nationalistic aspirations that were legitimized on the grounds of uh, uh, 400 years of Ottoman rule. At the same time, they were um, eager to become part of enlightened Europe and the best behind vehicle to succeed uh, in both was education. Traditional modernity coexisted as a dialectic, uh, a dialectic entity, and the University of Athens was founded on the line 
of um, German universities and more precisely um, um, the Ludwig Maximilians uh, University in Munich. Uh, one of the ambitions uh, in establishing a university in the young state was that of carrying the torch of knowledge uh, and civilization, spreading them to the neighboring region. This ambition was, cultivating during, um, was cultivated during the modern Greek Enlightenment, when the scholars of that period were initiated into European scientific and philosophical thought and reintroduced into um, the ancient Hellenic spirit. They claimed that European uh, thought was not alien uh, to the ancient Hellenic um, uh, spirit and that the French Enlightenment had been nurtured from the ancient tradition. An awareness of this um, newly discovered uh, shared connection needed to be widely disseminated, thereby uh, further strengthening not only the Greek national identity, but also legitimizing the state in its orientation towards the West. This belief was mirrored in the speeches Um, in the speeches of um, uh, all four deans uh, of the faculties during the uh, inauguration of the university. Um, in 1841, the first doctor who became rector um, at the university, Nicolaus Costis, in his ceremonial speech at the beginning of his rectorship, said that the university would disseminate scientific um, uh, light throughout Greece and beyond, becoming a cultural metropolis and would illuminate, um, I quote, the darkness that was covering the neighboring countries, end of quote. He proposed further that the university would be the bond not only with the Greek diaspora, but also with the whole scientific world. Having a higher educational institution, namely a university, the young Greek academia believed that it was joining the civilized nations of the European family, fulfilling at the same time its mission, that is to say, to civilize the Orient. One of the four uh, first faculties of the university was the Faculty of Medicine, of course, and the medical um, professionals in Greece played a decisive role in the creation of the country's first university. Um, One of the founders of the medical faculty and one of the uh, first rectors of the university, Johannes Olympios, who was educated in Heidelberg and Berlin, understood civilization solely with uh, relation to Greece's ancient past uh, and less with the West. Olympios was not alone in perceiving civilization in this way. This perception was dominant in the consciousness of the first and second generation of medical professors, and one uh, can see, um, studying the rector uh, speeches, of nearly all of the 20 rectors of the Faculty of Medicine from 1841 until uh, 1920. Nationalism was now coming into play, and we can watch how it was entangled with modernity. Greek nationalism was uh, constantly nourished, uh, relying on both the tradition from antiquity, uh, but also from orthodoxy. Nationalism was a significant power um, as an organizing and mobilizing uh, force. 
This force was vital uh, to the establishment of medical science in Greece, moreover, to give medicine the credit to play a central role in the institutionalization of knowledge, namely the creation of a university. Um, the notion itself was used with positive connotations, but all scientists who had key uh, positions in the shaping of not only um, of, of shaping not only of medical policy, but to some extent of social policy as well, recognizing nationalism as an essential part of a Greek identity. Uh, professor um, of forensics and uh, rector uh, in uh, 1860, Alexios um, Palis, emphasized that there was nothing more appropriate to do on the occasion of celebrating the appointment of the new rector than to remember the wisdom of ancient Greeks. Pilis went even further, attributing the newest scientific findings, even in psychiatry, to ancient Greeks. Perhaps the strongest demonstration of the nationalism was given by professor of physiology and rector in 1870, Konstantinos Fousakis, when he defended the pureness of the Greek race in the ceremonial speech. Fousakis' reaction was triggered by the published theories of um, the prominent Austrian Orientalist, uh, Jakob Philipp uh, Falmeraya, who had challenged the Hellenic origins of the current uh, Greeks. Um, right, I'll skip all this um, um, thing, or I'll just say uh, just a few things about how medicine is intertwined um, with a civilization and how medicine is becoming, um, let's say, a measure of civilization. Um, Costas, uh, uh, Nicolas Costis um, also um, uh, said that uh, uh, he used medicine in, in order to describe a civilized uh, um, person and uh, morphologically, a civilized human uh, being deferred from primitive persons who had savage feelings that disfigured the facial uh, features. The Greek race belonged without any doubt for Costis uh, to the civilized category, and a proof for that was the exquisite beauty of the Greek uh, uh, statues. He implied that um, uh, what differentiated Greece from its bar bar barbarian uh, former rules, uh, rulers uh, was civilization and he indirectly ranked uh, the Turks with criminals. Um, right. Just a few words about uh, the work of the Medical Council who, um, uh, which uh, slowly um, uh, shows us how the ideology um, uh, becomes a pra pragmatic undertaking. Uh, it uh, was established, as I said, in 1834, and it had many tasks, um, among uh, uh, which I am um, uh, distinguishing uh, the carrying out of experiments at its own microbiology, microbiology laboratories to create drugs or vaccine serums and controlling all medical products of similar uh, experiments um, uh, being dispensed in private labs before they uh, going to market. Um, what is interesting to see here is that um, the um, history of medical council uh, could be better described 
um, uh, uh, focusing on the presidents and what the presidents of the Medical Council was, were trying to do and how they were related with uh, the uh, uh, Greek government and the, the, the power games between the Medical Council and the um, uh, Greek government. Um, I just... Um, um, my time is up, and that's uh, also the time to uh, wrap it up and um, say some conclusions uh, that could be also derived from um, uh, also these, uh, let's say, um, description. Um, we see here that um, uh, the Greeks demonstrated the superiority of their civilization, that means the antiquity and orthodoxy using medical science and sometimes repeating the romantic rhetoric of the modern Greek enlightenment, uh, but uh, also um, they were trying to use um, also, let's say, the po a positivistic um, description of uh, uh, science when they were talking about the uh, morphe, uh, the morphological figures of the civilized person and so on. Um, but um, what we see here in the first years of the Greek, um, uh, of the construction of the Greek state is that at the same time we have um, an effort to establish the medical, uh, the, 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 the discipline of medicine, but also uh, to uh, form uh, a public health uh, policy. Uh, these two could not be um, examined separate. Um, on the other hand, uh, we see, let's say, um, an eagerness to deny uh, the fact that Greece uh, should remain at the margins and um, should belong to the West. Let's say it's a fight back uh, um, against the stigma of being backward and staying outside of the civilized uh, European scientific family, trying to keep, however, the merits of the own ancient civilization. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, Nazi Germany is, of course, a special case because, on the one hand, it refuses to accept the international system as it stands because that's tainted by the Treaty of Versailles. 
On the other hand, it wants international acceptance from that point of view. But not just that, it wants a leadership role. So, of course, for Greece, for example, I mean, some of the figures that I talked about, um, Tandler is collaborative, contributes to the public health system in, in, in Athens in the mid-1920s, but then you get the, you can say, the German occupation of Greece, um, and um, I can say they want control, don't they? Mm. And um, it's probably a story of resistance, mm. um, and, and, and um, maybe not. It would be interesting to hear. Uh, so yeah, I think that's how I view the German case. Yes, I mean. Um, what is maybe common, at least with um, uh, Paul Weindling's uh, presentation and mine, and to some extent to uh, Brian's, um, um, is, uh, let's say, the, the feature of nationalism, which is completely, um, not completely, but um, it has a different content um, uh, every time. I mean, in, in this case, nationalism is, is a tool uh, to become in international, but at the same time denying, uh, let's say, the, the, the established system. Uh, in my case, nationalism uh, is not contradicted with internationalism. Uh, um, it's, uh, it co coexists, uh, and uh, even better for, for the Greeks, I mean, uh, it contributes to, to the creation of this internationality, let's say. we. Um, and I think Franco's uh, Spain uh, also, let's say, um, maybe maybe I, I'm not um, completely right, but nationalism uh, also played some role in order to be admitted into the uh, WHO uh, system. Uh, um, it it was let's say a matter of uh, national survival. Yeah. Yeah, I think partly a matter of national survival, and partly just a matter of national. Prestige, prestige also, yeah. Pride, yeah, yeah. A visceral sense that Spain is being disrespected by not being admitted to these kind of these kind of organisations. And I think in Spain there's a like there's a a, a very specific um, thing about health, which is that it kind of it meets a need at a very specific time, and that it, it allows Spain to present itself as a, a state committed to social justice and, and social endeavour generally at a time. When it, its critics are, are, are labelling it as a, a kind of a backward fascist regime, unsuited or kind of out of step with the post-war world and the post-war uh, vision of welfare that's being constructed, I was actually thinking in relation to kind of what Paul was talking about and these kind of Nazi uh, international health initiatives during the Second World War, which Spain was involved in. I think that's like their involvement in that case is slightly different because they're before the end of the Second World War, there's not as much of a need for Spain to present itself as a socially just state. So their involvement in Nazi international health is, is slightly different than I think health during the Second World War. I mean, I'm not sure whether health during the Second World War is less important, or less important to Spain, or if it just means something different in the Second World War than it does in the First World War. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, related to the entrance of Spain in the World Health Organization, because 
as you said at the beginning, you got the only colonial power which was not invited and so on. And I think you didn't. For Paul, I have, in fact, um, two questions. The first is, Rasse Racism seems to be a very interesting group. Yeah. That, and are there German members in this group and so on? It's, it's because you mentioned, I think, uh, the American okay. um, anthropologists, some yeah, French yeah. and so on. And the second, I would have like you to develop a little more what happened after World War II. You know, we have the case of Spain, what happened for Germany in relation to uh, the World Health Organization. And for... Sorry, Marina? Yeah. Um, it's a question of uh, the importance of public health. Is it so important? I would have loved to have some figures to know what was the, the, the proportion of public health in the public budget of Greece. Is it so important? Or is, and the other point I was wondering is, uh, you show very well, and I think it's very important to, to show that public health is very important in state building. But in the case, in Greece, in the case of Greece, I was wondering if you know, it's a way to show that Greece is part of Europe. Because one, I think, one of the main issues for Greece during this period, during the whole 19th century, is to get access to the capital markets in Europe. You know, and I was wondering if, you know, who is financing these hospitals and so on? Is it through borrowing and so on? And so I was wondering if, you know, this public health discourse that you are showing was not uh, part of a broader picture. It was, you know, to get access in not only in the Western civilization but more concretely to capital markets in Europe, so London, Paris, Berlin, Geneva, which was important at that time too. And um, you know, that's in order to finance all these you know state activities and so on. And I was wondering if you know public health was not one of the different aspects of creating a state uh, I'll say a modern state in order to prove to the or to, 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 to show to the great powers that they could invest or they could borrow or they could uh, I'll say lend, lend money to, the, to Greece, mm -hmm. which is a huge issue during mm -hmm. the 19th century. Uh, if, if I may just ask, uh, Patrick, will you ask your question? Well, to follow on also on, on Jessica's line of, of, uh, of, of question. Um, my question is for Paul. Uh, well, I have some qualm with your slide on, on, on the Rockefeller Foundation and Vichy Fund, but it's not important. <laughs> it's fact. But my, my question is that I find I find your your presentation totally different from the two others because Spain and Greece wish wished to to be invited in the international community. Whether uh, 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 in, 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 at the opposite, the Nazi Germany want to create alternative institution, and that if you if you are thinking of, of, of an outsider in relation to power, that's a logic to, to follow. They must they they, they they fail of course, and certainly they fail happily. But, but they failed to, to create alternative institutions, but that was their goal, uh, uh, speaking of international cooperation. What do you see? Yes, you probably. <laughs> <laughs> um. Right. Um, to respond, first of all, to Rasse Racism, um, 
it's a really interesting organization. On the one hand, it has roots, which the idea is that there should be a pop, like a popular front against um, the threat of race ideology. On the other hand, it is also a linchpin of a wider international coalition. I think BOAS, for example, shows this, but there were a whole range of um, um, experts who all together um, set out to combat the threat of Nazi racism. And they point, and some of the writings are, okay, sterilization, there will be 400,000 people sterilized. They coin also a new vocabulary. The voc uh, they are using words that Tagref showed, that racist is a new term, term for example. So they coin an anti-racist and uh, terminology. It's, I think, very important and underestimated because in the whole history of eugenics, it's as if eugenics and race is expanding, but it's without limits. And this organization sets very conscious, very well-articulated uh, boundaries in terms of uh, political rights and un attacks racial theory um, uh, in an articulate way. Although some are also eugenics, eugenicists. You could be a eugenicist and an anti-racist, fair enough. Um, the issue of, um, okay, after World War II, the first thing that the Rockefeller Foundation does when it comes to Europe, Alan Gregg, what's he do? He's in France, he's in Belgium, he's in the Netherlands, then he takes a plane and he flies over Germany to Czechoslovakia. And I think it is a very um, significant thing. They don't want to deal with Germany, who they've been massively involved with, and they are disappointed. However, they, because of U.S. foreign policy, they're drawn into the um, into the zone. So relationships build up. It's particularly John D. Rockefeller III is, is who's who's keen. I think on the he's keen on all sorts of things like birth control, Japan, and Germany. Um, the okay. Germany initially at the UN has observer status. I think it's a member of WHO earlier, but I should know it. I don't quite know 51. the year. 51, thank you. Uh, so before, so before it has, so that's like four or five years before it is a full member, which is a bit like the 1920s as well. Um, very, very similar. So it's easier to engage in the sort of, po the, the more positivistic area of health than it is to, um, uh, I'm say, to enter into the, the sort of the, the so I can say, the overarching um, international parliament of the um, of the United Nations. That's it's, it's going to be held back there. Um, okay, um, we have the point of Leon. No, Patrick. Sorry, uh, or both. Uh, sorry, um, the uh, sorry um, the ex okay okay they set up all yes I think you're absolutely right the targets are absolutely I can say this is some sort of German vision it's some um, in the yes they're internationalists they will be constantly lecturing in Spain and um, they are collaborating in all sorts of international health schemes. So this is normal collaborative international health work on the one hand. On the other hand, 
yes, it is within this uh, a Nazified, uh, racialized system in which the Germans have a leadership role and want other states, whether neutral, who are important, like um, uh, Sweden, Switzerland, to follow their lead, which they becoming, I can say, increasingly with less success. Put it that way. I mean, there are other people like Gerhard Rosa, really interesting. Rosa had been in um, um, the, um, the uh, Peking Medical College. Um, and yet, and he too tries to get international support when he's on trial in Nuremberg and so on. Get some limited. Well, the period of, what would I say, cooperation with between uh, Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia. Was it anything more than formal? Were, were there actually anything that resembled the collaborative research of the earlier period? Or was it, what was it? How would you describe it? Okay. I mean, there were a set of schemes. Themes, yes. Schemes. I mean, there were schemes. different, different, I mean, it was a whole structure with um, uh, different sciences. Um, where you, your suspicion may be right, because one of them involves Babilov, for example. And of course, Vavilov is then execu executed or started. Execute. So that, in a way, that should alert one to the fact, in that point of view, there is a, there is a fictitious nature to it. Yeah. So I may have been exaggerating. However, it is a curious period, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you have it is war, international war. On the other hand, both the U well, the U.S. has a privileged status, also. Russia has a privileged status in that period. And so it's interesting that all they... It would be interesting to run at the ground and see what actually happened, if anything. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. You know, the, the Soviets were preparing lists of the health resorts that were in the territory seemed to be occupied and took them immediately. It was like not an exact priority. No, I'm sorry to speak with my friend Patrick, but uh, uh, his question, uh, Greece was invited so, to... Uh, well, wanted to be invited to, to join international organization. Sometimes we don't know what's exactly Greece of our, our countries. It's, we, we, we should speak of moments, places, groups, etc. When Greece wants to be uh, uh, invited in international organization, it's four years. That is a Venezuelan period, uh, prime minister, four years, 1928-32, then it's, it's finished. 
and it corresponds to the period where the, the leading policies are imposed by the refugees of Asia Minor, which is the main group sustaining Venezuela's policies. And if you think that the, to the formula of Toynbee, who spoke of Greece as having uh, lived the old 19th century more outside than inside his own borders, it means it's exactly the moment where the outsiders come in that the public health policies and international dimensions take the lead. But so it's exactly a moment, a place, a group. Uh, uh, sometimes uh, the formula of uh, Greece, well, it's a banality, it's something very, uh, but has some problem with the question. Um, just a small so, comment. I mean, um, at least in my presentation, I didn't went uh, <coughs> didn't go that far to uh, to talk about what happened during the uh, Asian Minor um, uh, catastrophe and what happened afterwards. My um, aim was to show uh, exactly this rhetoric of uh, trying to be part of of, of uh, a broader system. But anyway, we can discuss it later. What happened there and uh, what were the um, priorities and what were uh, the, the policy uh, Venizelos and uh, the governments before and after Venizelos followed. Um, I just uh, want very briefly to respond to your very interesting questions, at least. Um, I'm afraid I didn't, um, I didn't have time to show more about the Medical Council. Public health uh, was indeed very important in, in, in shaping and structuring Greece, and um, uh, this was, let's say, um, uh, an undertaking um, uh, uh, for which responsible was the Medical Council and the presence, particularly some of the figures. I just name Constantinos Savas, which is very well known to the people who are working with uh, the interwar period. Uh, he was the person who was really trying, struggling uh, to, um, uh, to put forward a, a new legislation for public health um, uh, for Greece. Uh, he, his efforts uh, uh, began um, in um, 1890, uh, sorry, 1810 or something, even before he becomes a president. And until his death, he tries to put forward this legislation, but he uh, always finds, let's say, barrier from the Greek governments and the uh, Greek. Uh, um, let's say, politicians for several reasons, we can discuss it further. So public health was, yes, very important, but the question is who is going to, um, uh, to, to make the policy for public health? And uh, university and the doctors at the university, the professors of the, the university, was also an elite who um, um, tried to influence uh, many members of the Medical Council were professors at the university. So it was, let's say, an inter interconnection between university, Medical Council, and other authorities. Um, about financing, um, for the period that I'm talking about, the financing uh, uh, is coming of, uh, well, from abroad, from the mergers of the Fanariots, um, but we cannot say that Greece um, is um, enjoying um, during the 19th century and uh, um, I don't know for um, yeah 
um, until 1913, uh, 14, uh, an easy time. I mean, uh, is in constant wars. That means loan after loan after loan for the wars. That means the um, money keeps coming, keep coming from uh, foreign powers. I mean, from Britain particularly, um, in order to you know, to uh, protect the um, uh, interests in the country and what public health has to do with it is nothing that it comes to the fore. At least I didn't see anything, but it needs uh, more to, uh, to be done uh, in terms of research. Very briefly. Oh, okay. Then thank you very much to our panelists.